This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 39 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, Discovery and its partners combine to provide a 249 rand a month medical aid for household employees. The chairman of the country's black tobacco farmers says his members are being put out of business by a government whose cigarette ban is supporting criminals. Our partners at the Wall Street Journal get the real story on why Donald Trump is sterilizing the World Health Organization. And in the wake of COVID-19 and President Cyril Ramaphosa's call for a $200 billion debt standstill for Africa, we take a close look at mushrooming emerging market debt. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa announced Tuesday evening that places of worship may resume services, provided the gatherings are limited to 50 people, with all having to practice social distancing and wear face masks. Religious leaders are now also being recognized as essential workers. Ramaphosa says that he has heeded the call for a national day of prayer which will be held this Sunday, May the 31st, at which the nation is being asked to come together and pray for the healing of South Africa and the protection of its people. Total deaths in the United States went past 100,000 today, with worldwide mortalities rising above 350,000. Total cases of coronavirus are now more than 5.6 million worldwide, of which 42% have recovered. South Africa reported 52 deaths on Monday, by far the highest for a single day so far, but probably more reflective of the low numbers for the weekend rather than a sudden surge. Almost 500 South Africans have now been killed by the virus, equivalent to 2% of total confirmed infections of 23,615. U.S. share prices rose by over 2% on Tuesday, on optimism about the reopening of economies and the potential development of a coronavirus vaccine. American stocks have now risen by more than 30% from their trough of late March. With the number of new infections in the U.S. having peaked, even the worst affected sectors are starting to see green shoots, with restaurant bookings and spending on hotels and air travel starting to pick up. The UK has laid out plans for the reopening of its retail stores, while Italy reopened its bars and restaurants over the weekend. Investors are also betting that one of at least 10 coronavirus vaccines currently being tested will be successful. Novavax is the latest to announce the start of human trials. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Well, as we go into Level 3, there are going to be a lot of people coming back to work. 1.2 million housekeepers, gardeners or caregivers who have been at home 
away from the employers. Welcome to Nonku Pitye, uh, who's head of employee health solutions at Discovery. You guys have just introduced something that's it's quite phenomenal. Take us through it. Thanks, Alec. I'm actually super excited. We do a lot of things, I think, at work, but this is something that's really close to my heart. Because I really believe that for the first time, there's a real solution that is one affordable, but solves a real need in terms of providing private health care for our household employees. Then for a very long time, we see them as extensions of our homes, you know, your domestic worker, your gardener, your caregiver. But it hasn't always felt like it's accessible or affordable to be able to provide them with this. So really, um, maybe at a very high level in terms of a summary, this is basic private health care. It's called Discovery Primary Care for Households. It's priced at 249 rands. And for that, you, just to give you a sense of what you get, you'd get unlimited nurse visits, unlimited GP consultations, the medication that go with that, dentistry, optometry, HIV management, flu vaccine, just to name a few things in that basket. So I think a really powerful, hopefully, offering that employers that have been seeking a solution and have thought there's no solution or an affordable solution can really invest meaningfully for their employees, their household employees. So has this been brought about by COVID-19? Oh, definitely not. So we've, we've been offering Discovery Primary Care to employers for probably the past three and a half years. We've really focused initially on offering it to corporate employers. And the reason for that was we're new in the game. We wanted to learn from the game and we wanted to really understand the journey. And there are many employers that have come along with us in this journey. Now that we thought it was the right time to be able to provide it at another level, also at even a broader scale. So I think what is quite powerful right now is that we've really learned so much about the journey, about making sure that the access points are easy, about making sure that an employee is never asked to pay a copay or pay out of pocket when they are in this healthcare journey. And it was at this point in time that we're ready then to make it almost accessible and more broadly to sort of the masses. There's no doubt that with COVID-19, when people do come back to work, housekeepers and gardeners and uh, caregivers and the like, that there is a higher risk. I mean, there's a risk no matter where you come. You know, as long as you're going to work and I guess you are engaging with with people, the risks exist whether you're a big corporate or you're coming into a household as in household employees. So we've definitely responded to the COVID need. To not do that would almost feel criminal, just like we did in the medical scheme we have in terms of this health insurance product. So we provide... I mean, there are a few things that we're doing that we think will really support employers and their employees in the household as they come back. So one is that we're going to provide a pre-screening so an employer can get access or the employee themselves to pre-screening. We're also going to be able to support with a virtual consult should the pre-screening come out as at risk. And we're doing this with our relationship with Vodacom and Discovery in terms of virtual consult. So free of charge that will be available to all household employees on this product. In addition to that, what we've also done is we've actually built a basket of care that responds to COVID-19 within the product. So we pay for certain tests. So if you a, a positive test, we'll pay for and we pay for a basket of treatment. So very much we are responding and we want to support. We are also dropping the waiting period in this regard for COVID-19 specific um, issues and illnesses. We are dropping that to a month. So our general waiting period for the um, 
for excess is three months. But for this in particular, we want to make sure that we can support as quickly as possible, be part of the solution in terms of prevention, education and um, treatment. If you have a housekeeper who is now coming back to work, if you pay 249 rand a month, that housekeeper will be covered, uh, not just for COVID-19, but into the future as well. So primarily for 249 rands, you will get the unlimited nurse visits, unlimited GPs, dentistry, optometry, HIV management and treatment, wellness screening. So that would be similar to glucose, cholesterol, etc., as well as a flu vaccination. Over and above that, in response to COVID-19, not just as you start work or as you start getting this cover, at any point in time where you feel at risk, or that you've been exposed to the virus, you will also have cover. And as I said, that cover will include screening, will include testing for positive cases, and then will also include a basket of care in terms of treatment that the GP will be able to levy for you. I think knowing how much one consult for a GP costs under normal circumstances, at least upwards of 450 rands, I think you'll agree with me that for 250 rands and the ability to just be able to help people on an ongoing basis around any healthcare need, COVID being one of them that's top of mind, is really quite a powerful value proposition. Nonku, how is this affordable from your side? Because we are amazing. No, (laughs) more seriously, Alex. We've worked, like I said, over the past three and a half years with our tutorial team, our tutorial teams. We've been able to understand experiences. We've been able to understand how people unlock access into private healthcare or don't or unable to. And we've been able to understand the price points. In addition to that, we, we worked exceptionally hard on our networks. So we really have provider agreements with pharmacies that provide the medication with pharmacies, because most nurses will be accessed through the pharmacy so that you have a one-stop shop for a nurse consult, a virtual GP, and then your medication. So with pharmacies, with nurses within the pharmacy, with GPs around the country, with dentists, optometrists. And so in the main, we've been very much able to understand, firstly, the patterns of how people use health insurance products because of what we've learned. But in addition to that, we're very much leveraging our relationships and our networks to negotiate the best rates in order to create this access. And it's been incredible, I think, how people have come to the party because I think we all understand that the healthcare system is overburdened. We're so now that we're facing COVID-19. So a lot of these providers have come to the party in a meaningful way with great rates in order for us to be able to do this at scale. And it's only for household employees. Yeah, so let me just add. So we have a Discovery Primary Healthcare product that is available for all employees in the country of any company that is priced in a particular way and has a benefits that are focused on that kind of employee. For household employees, we have tailor-made this product, having done a lot of research around what is required, what is needed, what takes household employees away from work for a very long period of time. And we've picked those key benefits and we've put them into this. So this particular product is available for any household employee in the country, obviously a purchase for them, hopefully by their employer. And then we do have for any employer that wants to talk to us because they have a corporate or they have a company of 10 or more members, they can talk to us about a primary care product that's also available for them. With people who live off the premises now coming into the 
family environment, presumably there is a greater risk to a family unit of COVID-19 entering the, the area. Your point is very important around the fact that if any employee, including a household employee that travels on a daily basis into different environments, and like a home and then work environment, obviously in terms of exposure, the exposure has probably increased. In addition to that, the truth is, and I think it's the same for you and it's the same for me, as our household employees come back, we are a bit nervous. And I guess that's natural for anyone. Like, were you keeping safe? Were you, you know, observing the regulations? Are you okay? And a big part of our thinking in terms of, like, as an example, the screening benefit actually came to feature only in the last few days as we started to apply our minds to when people come back, what kind of support can we provide so that an employer feels more supported and the employee feels more confident to come back, No, both of them knowing that the risk is low. So we in- included that benefit. I'll tell you another example of the kind of thinking we've done and what we've introduced. We've also introduced telephonic consultations, uh, first with nurses that can escalate to a doctor for primary care in particular. And we've done this again because we know that if your household employee starts to show any type of symptoms, not just COVID specific, but COVID in particular, you know, you're also now nervous to take them into a particular facility. And therefore, can we get frontline nurses to do screening, to do support, and then to navigate you into the relevant care? And we'll continue to think like this as we understand how this thing is playing out. So your point around is there risk? Of course, there's risk. If a person travels every day, the risk probably feels like it's greater. Can we support that? And will we continue to think about how we're supporting it? Definitely, we'll, we're doing that. Are you suggesting that everyone in the home wears masks? No, we're actually working with our clinical team and we have some that are now focused and have been with working with the NICD and that team understanding the guidelines and bringing them to ground level. So there's no suggestions around everybody were marks in the household. However, if a household employee or anybody in the household happens to be exposed to the virus or is confirmed to have COVID-19, then we do go through a process of explaining for confirmed cases, what does isolation mean? How are you able to isolate in your own home? How are you able to explain this to your family, I guess, the greater family. And if you think you're exposed, but you haven't been confirmed to be positive, we'll take you through the quarantine guidelines and processes. An additional value add is that there's funeral cover. So all household employees on this product will get funeral cover of 5,000 rands if you cover the main member, but you can cover children who have a different um, outlay. And I think that's 3,500 rands. While this is very much focused on out-of-hospital day-to-day cover required to really optimize, hopefully, the home in terms of getting the people treated and back at home quickly, we also have trauma cover. And what we found with our Discovery Primary Care product that is available sort of for corporates, we found that in 90% of the time, corporates take the primary care product and the trauma cover. And trauma cover really says if there's an accident, if there's a drowning, if there's a burn, if there's a for a select number of events that we've identified, you can get up to 300,000 or alternatively choose a cover for a million rands. And we've seen how powerful this can be because I think when you're going maybe for a flu shot or you're going, you know, because you have a headache or you have flu and you're not feeling well, it's very different from 
having been in a taxi accident, as an example, and being able to be taken to a private hospital facility, being investigated, and then being treated before you're released. So we found that this is a really powerful mechanism that employers are using in order to, I guess, retain as well as look after their employees. So that's completely sort of an additional extra, very little towards it, but really also quite a powerful benefit. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. But it's welcome to Shadrach Sabisi, who's the chairman of the South African Tobacco Transformative Alliance. Mr. Sabisi, uh, the email that you guys sent out today is very powerful, very hard-hitting, and uh, not surprisingly, because government has decided to extend the ban on cigarette sales, which directly affects you. But perhaps for background, how many tobacco farmers do you represent? I represent uh, 164 of uh, emerging black tobacco farmers and uh, 200 uh, commercial uh, farmers. How much tobacco do you guys produce every year? In the region of 120 uh, tons uh, per year as the black uh, tobacco farmers. And all used in South African cigarettes? Yes, it's only South African leaves and it's being sold by to the legal uh, tobacco producers in South Africa. So how has the ban on tobacco sales in the country affected you since lockdown? It has affected us big time because uh, as I'm speaking now, if this thing will continue for at least more than uh, a month now, that will essentially mean all the farmers that have just alluded to, will be out of business. They will be granted out purposely by the government. Purposely? Yes. What do you mean by that? I mean they're doing this with the intention, and that intention is what I wish to know. You make some pretty strong statements in your press release that the government is in bed with tobacco bootleggers, Yes, that's exactly what I said, and I'm standing by my word as I'm speaking to you now. Because remember, the legal uh, cigarette industry is compliant to all the regulations that the government has put forward to in regulating the industry. On the other hand, before this lockdown thing happened, the market shares in the cigarette industry, 42% was already in the hands of uh, this illicit tax. So then if now they've been given 100% right on the industry, is that not doing it purposely to make sure that they destroy the industry? Have you made submissions to the government? We did make uh, the submission even before the lockdown started because uh, we were made aware of all the regulations that were going to be imposed. And we met uh, all those uh, presentations up to now. Every time we had to make a representation, we, we did already now have sent two presentations, but uh, nothing uh, happened. What does government say to justify its continued ban on tobacco products? It's one official statement uh, that was uh, pronounced by uh, Minister Nkosazan Lamini Zuma, Dr. Nkosazan Lamini Zuma, 
that uh, says uh, cigarette smoking will spread the virus because people will share uh, the cigarette or zold, which was an unfortunate statement for a politician of Kosazana uh, Zuma's caliph, because the protocol has been put in place by the very government that says we need to observe uh, distancing, not shaking of hands, uh, staying home. How then that be possible for people to share a cigarette when one stays in his own house? That doesn't make any sense altogether, except that he knows what she, why did she sell that? Because uh, the, on the other hand, the illicit cigarette has been given 100% free run, which means now someone, so to be specific, is behind the whole thing. And I don't know who that is, but I wish if an investigation could be made, maybe South African will know. Because remember, the legal Tobacco industry is contributing to the fiscus in the region of uh, 13 billion a year. Then when you talk of uh, sin tax, because every year the government uh, put uh, the sin tax on the uh, cigarette, which uh, the legal industry comply and did all that to, to the benefit of the fiscus of the country. But now, that has been taken away. They don't consider how many billions are being lost since this inception of the, the COVID-19. You also say in your statement that the ruling party lacks moral courage, that they are really looking after their sponsors. What did you mean by that? I was mean, meaning it as uh, I've written uh, on that statement, because now... It seems the people that sponsor the politician, which I cannot call them by name because I don't know which politician is that, but on the statement that they've been putting forward not to lift the ban on cigarette, that clearly shows that someone among these politicians is benefiting from the illicit proceeds. I don't want to say who because I don't know who, but it seems, because they've put a stand on that one, that they must make sure that uh, the illicit cigarette get a 100% market share and the legal cigarette is shut out so that they can be out of business to get what they intend getting from the thieves. That thieves steal our livelihood, that steals uh, for all South African in the form of uh, the fiscals, because they contribute no cent in that regard. What are you going to do next? Now, the option that we have, as I'm speaking to you, is that we'll continue uh, persuading the government to reconsider their stand as far as uh, the lifting of the ban of, uh, of uh, legal cigarette, because... Uh, the illicit, they know. They confiscate cigarette day in and day out. They said nothing. And nothing goes to the fiscals. Then if surely these politicians have got no hidden agenda, what would one think they are doing? Destroying the industry for whose benefit?
for the criminals. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. President Donald Trump has threatened to cut off funding for the World Health Organization over its response to the coronavirus. Many countries, including South Africa, rely heavily on the WHO for advice and guidance in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And they were instrumental in controlling the Ebola virus in Africa. In this podcast, the Wall Street Journal's Betsy McKay and Andrew Rusticia explain how the WHO lost the confidence of President Trump and what the U.S. withdrawal from the WHO would mean for the future of the organization that relies on funds from member states. It all started when the WHO's Director General, Dr. Tedros, came out in support of how China was handling the coronavirus pandemic. The speed with which China detected the outbreak, isolated the virus, sequenced the genome, and shared it with WHO and the world are very impressive and beyond words. So is China's commitment to transparency and to supporting other countries. The criticism that he and the WHO came under at the time was, why are you praising China, which has just locked down, you know, imposed a massive quarantine of 60 million people? Back then, the WHO wasn't recommending mass lockdowns. So to some health experts, Dr. Tedros's public comments seemed to undermine the WHO's own advice. But more importantly, many experts didn't feel that China was being all that transparent. Reporting at the time revealed that the country had downplayed the risks early on. At first, the government claimed that the virus couldn't be passed from human to human, and it tried to silence whistleblowers who said otherwise. And here was the WHO giving China praise. WHO is the leading international public health body. So if WHO is praising China, that is sending a message to China that the world is is pleased with your response and, and is with you on this. And it's not putting pressure on China. It's not putting any pressure on China to act differently. Health experts' discomfort also spoke to a more deep-seated concern about China's increasingly strong influence in public health. A global superpower helping to solve health problems sounds great, but these critics say it also has risks because it gives China leverage in geopolitics, too. I think people are just generally worried about China and China's ambitions on the world stage, and this is part of it. You know, if China is able to get its own people into the WHO, what does that pretend for international disease control going forward? They're particularly worried about China's views and track record on human rights. And so there's concern about how that would play out as its influence in international disease efforts grow. But as the virus spread, the WHO's critics had bigger things to worry about than whether China was exerting too much influence. The epidemic was starting to run out of control in Iran and Italy and then the U.S. And amid all this, the WHO was playing a key role, warning nations to prepare for even further spread and sending tests and supplies to poorer countries. The WHO's critics began to quiet down. At the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, it wasn't just the WHO that was praising China. They're working really hard and I think they're doing a very professional job. They're in touch with world, the world, our world organization, CDC also. In early February, President Trump was saying that China was doing a great job. They're uh, extremely capable, and I think President Xi is extremely capable, and I hope that it's going to be resolved. Uh, again, the... But by March, 
President Trump's rhetoric shifted. But we want to look into a World Health Organization because they really are, uh, they called it wrong. They call it wrong. They really By this point, it. coronavirus cases were spiking in the U.S. and criticism of the administration was building. Medical professionals were pointing to delays in testing and getting protective equipment to health workers. And increasingly, when the president and other administration officials were asked about these issues, they pointed the finger at two parties. The president began making the case publicly that China and the World Health Organization didn't do enough to stop the spread to the United States in the first place. Our colleague Andrew Astucia covers the White House. He said China, you know, hadn't done enough, had been withholding information, and the World Health Organization, by extension, had been doing the same thing and sort of deferring to China too much and not questioning their version of events. They seem to be very China-centric. That's a nice way of saying it, but they seem to be very China-centric. And they, they seem to err always on the side of China. And we fund it, you know, so I want to look into it. Yes, please. In April, that shift in rhetoric became a policy shift. Trump announced that the U.S. would freeze its funding to the WHO while his administration looked into the organization's, quote, mismanagement of the coronavirus response. And on Monday, Trump said that investigation was finished. And he tweeted a letter to Dr. Tedros detailing the administration's findings. Here's Betsy. The gist of his criticism is that the WHO basically ignored reports in December of an emerging pneumonia, an emerging new disease, and then didn't do enough in those critical early weeks in December and early January to pressure China to come clean about what was going on and what this new virus was and what was happening with it. Responding aggressively in the first few weeks is very critical, as we have sadly seen. And so that's the gist of his criticism, that the WHO did not pressure China enough and that it, in fact, accepted what China was itself reporting. For example, the letter points to a WHO tweet that repeated a claim China was making in mid-January, that there was no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission. Human-to-human transmission is really the whole ballgame, right? I mean, if this wasn't transmitted from person to person, you know, we wouldn't be in the situation to begin with, right? I mean, we wouldn't be wearing masks. The virus wouldn't have spread across more than 100, almost 200 countries now. So the, the president's point here is... You know, if the U.S. was warned, if all countries were warned that this was transmitting, you know, among humans earlier, then maybe they could have done more. The WHO did say in a press conference the same day it tweeted China's claim that human-to-human transmission was possible. Trump was raising some of the same issues that health officials had raised back in January and February. But his prescription about what to do about it alarmed public health experts. In his letter, Trump warned that if the WHO didn't make unspecified changes, the U.S. would permanently cut off payments to the organization, payments that make up about 15 percent of the WHO's entire budget. And the U.S. might even pull out of the WHO altogether. In a statement this week, the WHO said it had received the president's letter and was considering it. This letter landed at the WHO on a pretty big day for the organization when its 194 members come together for a big annual meeting, the World Health Assembly. Good afternoon, good evening, your excellencies. Member countries dialed in to discuss the pandemic. And there, another major global player made a move that was pretty much the opposite of Trump's. Xi Jinping is one of the first people to speak. 
And he gets up and he makes a pretty impassioned plea for continued funding for the WHO and for major countries contributing, you know, a larger amount to the broader pandemic. And then he announces this two billion dollar contribution, which is not specifically to the WHO, but it's it's to the broader fight. For the sake of boosting international cooperation against COVID-19, I would like to announce the following: China will provide two billion U.S. dollars. Over two years to help with COVID-19 response. The same day that the president of the United States was threatening to pull funding, China was pledging two billion dollars to the coronavirus fight worldwide. It's a huge contribution, and really more than that, it's symbolic because it's China standing up and saying, "Like we're going to take a global leadership role in this fight." It's interesting because one of President Trump's concerns seems to be that China has too much influence over the WHO. But by pulling the WHO's funding, couldn't he be creating an opening for China to have more influence? Yeah, I think he's actually given China an opportunity here to exert influence and power. You know, this is China sort of stepping into the void that's left by the United States. You know, which is at the same time threatening to pull out of the World Health Organization altogether. This is China saying, you know, we're going to step up and fill that void. So then, why would Trump do it? I think there's a few reasons why he's doing it. I mean. First, he's been entirely skeptical of broad international organizations for the duration of his presidency, from the United Nations to NATO. This is sort of an extension of that. Two, I think you know, at least his critics would say that he's trying to deflect blame from what's happening in the United States. He has come under deep, deep, deep criticism from lawmakers and public health officials. This gives him an opportunity to sort of say, you know, this isn't my fault. This goes back months to China and the World Health Organization. The White House says that the U.S. is not retreating from its global leadership role, and a White House spokesman called Beijing's two billion dollar pledge a distraction from China's own coronavirus response. But President Trump's letter puts the WHO in a tough spot. This Wednesday, the organization said that it is 1.3 billion dollars short of what it needs to fight the pandemic through the end of the year. That number is so large in part because it can't count on contributions from the U.S. But if the U.S. does pull back from the WHO, the loss will go deeper than just money. It would also lose a major player. We have a lot, a ton of expertise here. I mean, life-saving medications, vaccines are developed by U.S. companies, by the NIH. The CDC has the world's leading public health experts, and so not having a cooperative relationship with the with the U.S. is incredibly damaging to global health efforts generally and to WHO.、Mm-hmm. You sort of start to devolve into a world of everybody doing their own thing. It's incredible that the mission that the WHO was set up to help solve and prevent are situations like the one that we're in right now with a pandemic. And this also happens to be the moment that the very foundation of the organization is fraying. If these battles start to emerge as things go badly, it shows the stress and the tragedy that everybody is encountering right now. The lockdown of economies will result in an extraordinary amount of pain for emerging markets. In addition to the health disruption, the global economic collapse means that in many cases exports have come to a standstill. But how can poorer countries be helped right now? 
President Cyril Ramaphosa has called for a two-year debt stillstand for African countries due to the coronavirus, which is longer than a moratorium agreed by G20 countries. Three world experts on sovereign debt restructuring, Professor Mitua Gulati from Duke University, Ugo Panizzi from Geneva, and Lee Bukait, an expert on sovereign debt law, put together a comprehensive aid plan for emerging markets. They spoke to Bloomberg's Joe Wiesenthal and Tracy Alloway about their plan and why moving it forward has proven so difficult. There have been a hundred countries that have asked the IMF for emergency financial assistance. That's more than half the membership of the IMF. But that money will not be enough. And in, for some countries, not nearly enough to defray the extra expenses that are coming with this health crisis. Therefore, they're faced with this choice of having to divert funds that had been earmarked for other governmental purposes, including debt service, to divert those funds toward the expenses of, of dealing with this pandemic. If I can just add one number. So the, the IMF forecast growth for all its 190 member countries. And at the peak of the global financial crisis, it forecasted growth, positive growth for 77 countries. This year is forecasting positive growth for nine countries. So this is really, <laughs> and even for these nine countries, they are forecasting very low positive growth, basically nobody above 2%. You know, there have been some efforts to think about the global implications of the current crisis. And one of the efforts that seemed very positive started with an IMF World Bank call for action and was then followed by the G20, you know, announcing that there would be a debt moratorium for the rest of the year, 2020, on debts, uh, on payments that are owed to the bilaterals. And importantly in that, there was a request that the private uh, creditor sector also provide similar relief. And there had been indications that they were willing. The Institute of International Finance, sort of a lobbying group for the private creditors, had agreed that, yes, we should provide relief to the poorest countries in the world all together, all on comparable terms. And this seemed like a very positive sign that at least we were beginning to think about this providing relief very quickly. Unfortunately, as of today, this seems like it is, in my skeptical viewpoint, all completely falling apart. All of those enthusiastic statements about providing relief for the rest of the year uh, seem to be going nowhere. I think the official sector will provide the relief. I think the private sector is basically trying to delay and not provide any relief whatsoever. Well, the way we've been thinking about it is that we have an immediate emergency. And that is the need to get funding into the hands of these countries to deal with the pandemic. Entering 2020, there were a handful of countries who had already acknowledged that they needed a full-scale debt restructuring. Argentina, Lebanon, Ecuador, Venezuela, obviously. 
we will leave 2020 with a much longer list of countries that need a full-scale debt restructuring. Mm. But that's not the focus right now. The immediate focus in the and, and the paper that my colleagues and I produced was intended to uh, find a way quickly and uniformly to free up, liberate cash that these countries could use for COVID-19 amelioration. This program that Me Too has described involving the official sector and we hoped the private sector was all intended to focus on that. Everyone knows that within a relatively short space of time, we will have to confront the broader issue that you've just mentioned. How does one deal with full-scale debt restructurings? Because many countries will exit the COVID period with unsustainable debt stocks. Uh, that will be a challenge, frankly, that we have not faced since the 1980s and the Latin American debt crisis, and the world was very different back then. We propose that the debtor countries that need this relief, and not all of them will, uh, some of them will not be afflicted by the epidemic as badly as others, and some may continue to have, or at least have hopes of having, market access. But for the rest, we propose that they open what we call a central credit facility, a CCF, with a multilateral development bank. That could be the World Bank, but it could be one of the regional development banks, African Development Bank, Asian Development Bank, and so forth. The country would then divert the payments that would normally have gone toward interest payments on external debt. It would divert those payments into the central credit facility. As the amounts arrive at the CCF, the administrator, the multilateral development bank, would credit the relevant creditor with a, a participation interest in the CCF, just like a syndicated loan. The country could then borrow from the CCF to deal with COVID-19 related expenses. This is a critical feature because the multilateral development bank would be responsible for monitoring the use of that money. No individual commercial creditor or even group of commercial creditors is going to be in a position to undertake that monitoring task. And the last thing anyone wants is money that has been effectively contributed by creditors to deal with this pandemic being siphoned away for other purposes, put it that way. So the uh, multilateral development bank would be responsible for that. The, we don't specify what the financial terms of the CCF should be, but common sense says that they should be, that, that the repayment terms for the CCF should not put further burden on the post-COVID financial position of these countries. Do any of you have an estimate for how much money that could actually free up? It kind of depends on whether the bilateral creditors are also going to participate in this. The, the maximum number, if we only focus on a payment due on long-term debt, the maximum number is actually 900 billion. That's the maximum 
amount which is owed by all emerging and developing countries. Clearly, as Lee said, not all countries would need uh, this type of help. So this is sort of an upper bound. And, uh, and the amount varies from, from country to country. Is that an opportunity perhaps to rethink the way emerging markets are funded or to sort of hit reset on the way this whole system actually works? I don't know. I mean, I've been pushing for a long time towards this idea of using more uh, contingent debt instruments, and so far they haven't worked. I can tell you of many cases in which countries have paid dearly to try to use, you know, issue GDP index bonds uh, in the sense that they paid a price when things were going well without getting anything when things were going badly. So if we could go in that direction, that would be great. Even though I'm the optimistic guy, I'm not very optimistic, but I don't know what Lee could add on this. The current effort by some in the official community is to try to figure out a way in which we can deal with multiple sovereign debt restructurings going on simultaneously. Uh, We did that in the 1980s, but of course the creditor universe was a much more homogeneous group of commercial banks. Uh, Arguably we did it uh, starting in 1990 with the Brady Initiative. And that's what some in the official sector are looking at. Is it possible to replicate a template for how a sovereign debt restructuring could be done so that if we are faced with a situation in which there are 10 or 20 or 30 countries going through the process at the same time, uh, they would not have to each individually and in a bespoke manner attempt to figure out uh, how to implement a, a debt restructuring. That's uh, right now the subject of investigation by some in the official sector. This has been episode 39 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.